Let me ask you to go to a text today, a very important passage. Today I'm preaching from, actually, from the, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a Bible, please, we, uh, if you have, hopefully there's one in front of you. We're starting to, we need to buy some new Bibles, I think. We're starting to, people take them, which is fine. If you want to take one home and steal it, we, we'll be cool, actually. We're cool with that. <laughs> we're cool with that. You could steal our Bibles. and that, I don't know if God's cool with that, but we're okay with that, okay? Um, so, uh, first, but today's passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, but I'm going to start from the latter portion of chapter 12 because actually... When the, when, the, when the Bible's written, I mean, the original manuscripts are in Greek, and you don't have all these little verses and chapter numbers in there. And so these, these breaks are, are done by, by, by later. I mean, this, it's, a, it's a great way to learn the, the Bible because those verses and references are very useful. But the, what the, the content of this very famous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the Bible's, famously the Bible's discourse on love, actually flows right out of what he's saying in chapter 12. And so I'd like to read from there, from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, through the end of chapter 13, verse 13. And so, this is the word of God. Did you hear it, please? Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then, miracles. Then, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. That's what we're getting into. This is the more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these 
is love. Incredible words. Um, let, me, let, me, let me ask for prayer. Let's pray for today's message. I think it's especially today. I'll need prayer. Lord, these words are famous, and yet we are a society that celebrates love, and yet we are so love poor. We, so many of us, most of us, if not all of us, we feel that we are very poorly loved, and we are very bad at loving others. And yet, today, Lord, I I pray that I would take this passage, which may be familiar to many people, but I pray that the familiarity, the deadness of the familiarity, you would use me to punch a hole in that and make the words come alive again. Help us see the astounding thing that's in this text, which really takes us to you. And help us, Lord, to believe what this incredible word is saying. And you will turn us into a people, people who are loved and who love in the way that only you can do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I usually do, I will. I would like to give this message in three acts. Act one: um, our abilities versus loving. Our gifts and abilities. Our obsession with gifts and abilities versus love. Part two: the power of being loved. And part three: I want to talk about the hope that the gospel offers, the hope that the gospel offers. Part one, um, this passage, this incredibly famous passage, you, you, you may, many of you may have gone to a wedding, and at a wedding, they, they, they like to, they like this, I don't know how many weddings I've gone to where this is, is read. And maybe you've gone to somebody's house, and they might have this on their wall. They, they have a, or it's framed, and, it's, it's, and they're beautiful words. They're incredible words. But actually, in order for you to really understand th- what these words are saying and the context in which Paul says them, I actually have to insult you a little bit. Our society, really, we love to celebrate love, and we love love. Love is so great, and love is all this, and love can change things, and all you need is love. You know, we have all these songs that are about love, right? But... What this passage is saying is radically opposed to the way we think about love. Radically so. And he placed, Paul places this teaching in the middle of a, a set of other teachings. And in order to really do this right, we really need to actually kind of have a study of, of what precedes it, especially chapter 12. And, and we can't get into all that today, but I just wanted to, to read that tail end of the portion because it's very relevant to this part one of my message, what I'm saying, what, I, what I've called our, our, our focus on abilities and gifts over love. Because that's what's really happening in this previous portion. Paul planted this church in Corinth. And the Corinthian church is a highly gifted church. They're, they are gifted in all kinds of ways. To so just give you a, a, a picture of this, the Corinthian church... Uh, the city of Corinth is not unlike our city. I mean, probably they, they, was, they had what back then what we would call globalization. Uh, the, the Mediterranean was a very multi-ethnic global trading world. And it, and it takes certain periods of history in order to do this. Uh, a lot of people resent the fact that America is the world's police and keeps the peace, so to speak. But the fact is, 
if nobody kept the peace, we can't all get together, meet and trade and make money and get rich. Globalization requires a world's cup. Today it's America, but back then it was Rome. Rome was the world's cup. And so you have these cities that would arise up and people would, you know, back today we fly into the cities or we do our commerce through the internet, but back then people would take ships and they would go through. And Corinth was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. And Corinth had the art and they had the smart people and they would have these great temples and so forth and and all the different ideas would flow through the city. And so Corinth was filled with people that were smart and talented and ambitious and they would go there to be educated and they would go there to get rich. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? That is just like our city. That is not unlike the great cities of the world today. And this city, uh, I don't know if many people, actually San Jose is a weird city because it, oddly San Jose has a bit of a, an inferiority complex because there's a little city an hour away that's a little more famous than us and a little more prettier than us. And so everybody knows that city, but they don't know our city. They're like, do you know the way to San Jose? They're like, no. <laughs> and so we're like, do you know the way to Silicon Valley? They're like, oh, I've heard of that place. Well, it's the same place. Uh, Okay, um, actually, it's a little bigger than, than San Jose. It, it tends to start up from that little, little place called Palo Alto, Stanford University, and it stretches down to South San Jose, you know, right, right in there. Some, this little company that some of you might have heard of called Cisco, okay? And um, this area is, is filled with a set of people not unlike the, the, the people that would be in the city, in the Church of Corinth. And in the church of Corinth, the people would gather together, and what they were really interested in were gifts. They were especially interested in spirituals. Do I have tongues? Hey, do you need to have tongues? Hey, prophecy. This guy's got prophecy. This guy's got faith. This guy is one of the apostles. And that's why he's saying that the various people have all these different things. And I, I, this first portion that I read today I actually has some explosively <laughs> controversial issues and I'm not really interested in getting those issues I'm sorry so if you thought the, the pastor today was going to tell you about tongues sorry I'm not going to really talk about that I'm really more interested in the bigger more macro issue that not whether you care about tongues or don't care about tongues or prophecy or pro- uh, don't care about prophecy but the bigger issue that the Corinthian Christians cared about do I have a gift what's my gift What's my talent? What do I have that makes me special? Because that in, in this day and age where capitalism reigns, you're constantly going out there and you, your abilities, your gifts, your talents, the things that set you apart from all the other people, this, just like the, the, the members of the Corinthian church, this is what we're obsessed with today, our abilities. And this chapter 1 Corinthians 13 is a tremendous rebuke to that spirit. You have the spirit of, I'm, what is it that I can do? This, these things, this is what, these are my talents, and this is what I'm good at. And this whole incredibly famous discourse is a big rebuke to saying, actually, if that's what you care about, you're really, you're really more like nothing. And I, let me just say a couple words about you know, why we're like this. Um, we're like this because we're Americans or because we're, we are of, of Western culture. And by that, I mean I'm talking about Europe and America. But actually, there's many cultures in the world that are not 
as that don't think quite the way we think. And um, I don't know if you, you many of you, you, you worry about this question, who am I? Uh, there, this issue of identity is just all over the place in our society. I mean, it's in our songs, in our music, in our movies. Identity, this question of identity. And in our society, do you know that most of you, most of us, all of us, we tend to build our identity on something that we can do, some piece of gifting or talent. And we say, this thing, it, it's, this is what makes me special. Because at the end of the day, we're individualists. And we believe that every individual is special, every individual is unique, and yet we think what makes every individual unique is what they can do, what's special and unique about them. Now look, if you go into Europe and America, it's, we really believe this in America, everybody believes that individuals have, indi- have, have distinct worth, that this thing can't be, it's, we call it inalienable even that nobody can take this worth away from you, but actually, outside of the West, people don't really believe that. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> um, people don't really believe that individuals have inherent worth because the fact is, um, the, the reason, this idea that individuals have worth, you know where that idea comes from? The idea actually comes from the Bible. That the Western culture was originally built upon the Bible as we know it today. It was built, and they believe that individuals have worth. But in our society, increasingly, we do not believe this. But outside of the West, outside of the West, people really don't believe that individuals have worth. But they do know how to do community. They do, they know how to do community. They don't actually tend to worry so much about who am I, what's my identity, because the way they get their identity is. They know that who they are by the family they were born into, by the culture they were born into. And most of those cultures believe that who we are as a we, as a big nation and as a culture, this is more important than any one individual person. In fact, actually, this is maybe a little su- surprising to you, they actually don't think any individual is very important, which is why individuals can get killed. Um, in, in the, increasingly in the West, we, we think individuals can get killed. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to touch on one of the most uh, controversial society, um, issues in our society, but we kill individuals when we don't see how they are of worth when they're not born. But do you know that abortion is even more viciously practiced in non-Western cultures because, hey, this, this kid who's going to be born is a girl and girls are not as useful and as valued in our society, so they, they get aborted. But people actually don't worry about their identity as much. It's odd, because if you are part of the big machine, so to speak, you kind of know that you belong. I'm the son of this person, and we are this, and so forth. In our society, we're not big, we're low, whatever. But you are accepted as long as you do your part. That's why duties and honor are such a big deal. And so a number of you who may have grown up in an Asian type, you know, this is a mostly Asian church. Some of you don't, some, sometimes they may have left a church like this or you don't like the way you were raised up and your parents are always telling you how you should be and you know, the duties you should follow. And you, you kind of hate that. But because you grew up here in America and you drank the American individualist Kool-Aid. And as an individual, if someone's always telling you to do these things, you feel like your individuality is being imposed upon, is being crushed, and it's true. But actually, there's a blessing 
to the other way of doing things, what they have is they have community. Everybody knows their part, and everybody knows that they belong. And as long as you don't poison the well of the whole machine, so to speak, you'll be accepted, and you'll know who you are. But increasingly, you know, the, the great advantage of the Western is we don't have to belong because we'll just go make our own way and we'll be free. Freedom. This is the great thing that we love. Individual freedom and individual uniqueness. But the cost is this. You don't know who you are. Now, in the past, when American and European culture was built more on the Bible, people didn't worry about their identity as much. You know why? Because the Bible teaches you you have worth Inherently, because you are loved. But because we don't fundamentally believe in God, we've taken God out of the picture. God is not in the picture anymore, and we don't believe there is this incredible being over all history, almighty and omnipotent, who loves us. Instead, you know what we have to do? Now we have to go find out who we are, and we have to make and prove the specialness of our individuality. And you know where that comes from? what you can do. <laughs> you get fixated on what you can do. It's, it's actually odd. It's odder than that. It's, it's not even always something even what you can do. It's kind of like what you are. Um, I want to read, I want to read a portion that uh, some, we've been, there's a, a, few, a handful of people in our church who are going through discipleship training. And um, I write some of the materials for the discipleship training and out of one of the lessons of this past week, I, I want to read a little portion of something I said to you, which is actually relevant to this text. And here, here's the way I put it. In our culture today, we are constantly fixated upon what people can do. We are obsessed with someone's abilities, especially our own. What are my talents? What are my gifts? What can I do that others cannot do? Or, or at least they can't do it as well as I can do it. And it's actually not always what I can do. It's sometimes just what I am, what that nobody else is. I mean, the fact is a supermodel, a supermodel doesn't really do much. What does she do? She just shines gorgeousness. I just shine gorgeousness. And then I walk around, and whatever clothes I wear, now you know, women want to wear the clothes I wear because they want to be like me. So it's not even something that she does, but it is what she is, which is special. That's her gift. The supermodel's gift is, well, you're gorgeous, and we just want to stare at you all the time, okay? But this is what we are obsessed with, this thing. Obviously, this question of what is my gift is not unimportant, but our obsession with this matter is revealing. We are so obsessed with this issue that we actually believe that what we do is who we are, identity. What we can do is how we gain our identity. And upon our identity, built upon our abilities, we make this boast. This is how Paul talks. So actually, as soon as you go around and talk about who... This is how we operate. Hey, what's your name? My name is... What's your, oh, what's your name? Where are you from? Okay, what's your name? And then what's the next question? What do you do? And so, you, it's, it's odd. Even the way you think about who you are is what you do. And what you do is what you feel like is what makes you special. And Paul calls that your boast. And if, you, if that thing that's special were to fail or people would be a lot less than you think, then you would then feel like nothing. Because you'd have nothing to boast of. Right? This, you, 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 you get what I'm feeling about how we operate? Um, 
it's actually kind of, it, 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 it's, and it's so normal, I'm, I'm trying to kind of deconstruct w- the way we operate, which is utterly normal, but I'm trying to tell you that the way, we, actually, let me, let me put it even crazier this way, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, this habit of ours which we take to be utterly normal in our times is deeply idolatrous and contrary to the gospel. Christianity is utterly radical against this way of operating, of thinking about identity. A disciple of Jesus is a child of God and he does not find his or her worth in what he can do, because that's works. Or even your talents. Your value and worth is based on being beloved by God. It's based on a relationship, not on an ability. And so, we tend to practice justification by works right down to the core of our identities. You understand that being saved by grace is crazy hard for Americans to really deeply believe because we believe in justification by works right down to the bottom of our heart. And so let me put it this way. To put it bluntly, the fact that we are, this is so deeply ingrained in hearts and minds is satanic. That's, wow. That's hard, isn't it? Because this thing, individualism, you take individualism, it's great to be individualist, but you take God out of it, it becomes of the devil, quite frankly. And we get fixated on this question of what we can do. Now, I'd like to give you one illustration about this before I go into the next part of my, of my message. Um, does anybody know who Dave Dravecki is? Anybody know who Dave Dravecki is? Ah, there are four baseball fans in this room, okay? Dave Dravecki is, uh, was, well, he used to be famous. He's not as famous now. Dave Dravecki was a starting pitcher with the San Francisco Giants. So he's somewhat known, at least in this area. He, wasn't, he was never a superstar. He was a good pitcher, never one of the best. Okay. So today he'd make $10 million instead of 25 okay? Um, back then, I think he only made like a $2 million as opposed to 8 or something, okay? And, but Dave Dravecki, um, he had cancer. And he had to leave the game for a while to fight cancer. And he, he seemed to be beating cancer. And after a time away from the game, he came back. And there were these incredible games. I mean, he came back to pitch. And there were these incredible games. He would go out. Here's a lefty. He'd go out there and pitch. And the whole stadium would be on their feet. Because everybody could relate to this guy. You were dying. And now you came back. And look at you. I can't believe you are pitching. You're a major league. You, are, you defeated death. Came back. And there was one particular game, and he's a lefty. He threw, and I don't know if many of you knew this. What happened was this big snap, and this noise was so loud, it rang throughout the whole stadium because his bone snapped right across his arm. Because when you fight cancer, cancer starts to eat away sometimes, at, you know, the, the chemo and the radiation... And then, of course, cancer can start to eat away into your bones. And throwing a baseball, that's, that's a violent piece of activity. And his arms snapped, and he crumbled to the ground, and the whole stadium stood up horrified. And this was on ESPN. It went out throughout the nation. And people wept when Dave Dravecki went down, when his arm was broken. And so he went into the hospital, 
And they realize you fought cancer, but now your arm can't take it anymore. And they realize, you know, your arm can't recover. They decide, the doctors decided he need, they needed to amputate his arm. And so he went through the surgery, and he came out. And, and I, I read this in an excerpt in Sports Illustrated. He, they, he wrote this in a book later on. You can go get this book. And this excerpt was in Sports Illustrated, and I remember reading this. And he said that after the surgery, he looked himself in the mirror, and he was shocked at what he saw. Because they didn't just take off his arm. They basically needed to take off a big chunk of his shoulder. I mean, he came like this. Can you just imagine your neck and then just nothing? And he looked himself in the mirror, and he started to weep. But he then started to say, I'm without my arm. What am I going to do? Who am I? And he talked about this in his book. He says that in baseball, if you're a pitcher, literally they call you an arm. What is he? He's an arm. He is what he can do. He is his gift, his ability. And um, they said, get the arms. How many arms we got in the, in the pen? <laughs> Not how many guys we got in the pen. How many players we got in the pen. How many arms? And there he is looking at himself, and it was gone. And he said the only way he could kind of come back, he's always, he didn't have a job anymore. He lost his job. He lost his abilities. He lost his self, his identity. But the only way he could recover from this is he began to realize, actually, I'm not an arm. I'm a son of God, redeemed and loved because of Jesus. That's the way he was able to come back in his heart. That's what we're talking about today. I'm going to part two of my message. The power of being loved. Look, well, the beginning, there's, there's kind of like three portions in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And let me just, just, just say this a little bit. Um, the, the one that especially blows me away is this. Uh, if I have all faith, so the, the first three verses of chapter 13, he's talking about not just abilities, not just talking about gifts. He's ta- and I mean, remember, he's a pastor. He's talking about spiritual gifts. I mean, throwing a baseball, that's a natural gift. Being able to throw a ball harder than 90 miles per hour, very few people can do that. But that's a natural gift. He's talking about spiritual gifts, gifts only given by God. We're talking about (laughs) divinely given gifts, and he takes them to their nth degree. And so the one that blows me away is he says, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, I can remove the mountains with my faith, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. The, the, the other one that especially um, convicts me is if I, have, I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have love. I, I mean, I make a living by talking. <laughs> and so um, if, if I can speak like an angel, that would make this church probably blow up and I'd become super famous. Uh, if I could speak like an angel, I could be the greatest preacher in all of America. And there would be a lot more people in this room. They, 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 would, they would spill out of this place, and I could write a book, and, and then it would just you know, shoot to the top of the Amazon list if I could speak like an angel. But Paul says, if you could do that, but you don't have love, you're really nothing. 
The illustration I used in the discipleship was, um, some of you guys like basketball. I'm, I'm sorry, some of you, if you don't like sports, so you go, I'm into computers, or ladies, like, I'm into makeup, or whatever you're into, or I'm into romance novels. I'm using sports analogies today. But um, what if you could play basketball like Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Do you realize Michael Jordan is going to stand before Jesus one day and he could say, I'm the greatest basketball player of all time, ever, ever. I'm better than Magic and Larry. And Jesus goes, sorry, you are nothing. Isn't that incredible? We don't believe that. We really do not believe that. But Paul takes this, yet he ups this to another place. Because he knows that Jesus teaches that if you have faith, even a little bit of faith, your faith could literally, you can move this mountain. Now, Jesus, God is not really, he kind of likes the mountains where they are. But what he means is there are some things in your life that are so impossible to move. They're like a mountain. But if you had faith, you could move it. I wish I had that kind of faith. That to me would be sort of like Michael Jordan in faith. I wish we had somebody like that in our church. I would, I would like to be around that kind of person. I would like to be even something like that kind of person. But actually, what you really want more than that, what's even more powerful than that, is to be loved. To really, really be loved. Isn't that what you really want? Just go to verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Let's just stop there. Somebody in your life, and they're around you, they're like this, patient and kind. Dude does not insist on their own way. And actually... So that, or just let me just stop there. That'd be, that'd be really great, wouldn't it? If somebody loved you. And Ameri- in America, we think love is basically a feeling. But let me tell you, that's wrong. Love is not less than a feeling, but it is far more than a feeling. Because it, does, it even has qualities like this. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it, 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 it rejoices with the truth. There's lots of people who say, hey baby, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then, and then next thing you know, the, the guy's like with somebody, other girls, like, well, but I really love you. Is it? Do you? According to the Bible, you don't. Hey baby, baby, I love you. Sorry I hit you last week. Really? Does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Real love actually has righteousness and has wisdom, has staying power. It's practical. It does things. It has an attitude. There's a character to real love. It's a lot bigger than a feeling. And even though, and as I, as I talk about this thing, as much as all our songs are about love, it's, it's deep down what you really want is that. I hope that's what you want. Hey, it would be nice for me to have dinner with Michael Jordan. Actually, I'm more of a baseball fan. <laughs> my favorite baseball player is, one of my very, very favorite baseball players is Ricky Henderson. 
I would love to have dinner with Ricky Henderson. But let me tell you, I would way rather have my wife than Ricky Henderson. This is such a a huge thing. Um, um, (laughs) I was thinking about this. uh, Our movies, our songs, uh, all you need is love. That's what the Beatles sing, right? But how about... um, I, there's, the movie that, that, that comes to mind when I was thinking of this sermon is Jerry Maguire. You guys ever watched Jerry Maguire? Great movie. I, I still think it's Tom Cruise's best movie. I'm not sure what's number two. I don't really care what's number two. It's his best movie. But really, it's about a sports agent. He's really good at getting the deals. And the movie starts off with a scene where he's the agent of a hockey player. The hockey player got hurt. He goes into the hospital... The guy, if he keeps playing, is going... I mean, nowadays we're a lot more sensitive to this issue of concussions, especially in football, but if he keeps playing, he's going to basically become a vegetable. But as a, as a... He has the power, he has the ability to say, you're great, go in there, you're awesome. Don't worry, you can do it. And so he plays his role and he goes and does it and his son is sitting right there and he basically, his son knows, are you, what are you doing? And he knows that if he is an agent and does what an agent is supposed to do, then his dad is going to be a vegetable and he'll lose his dad. And so then he has this moment of crisis. He begins to realize he can't just use his abilities to make money. And his, this guy is, will be a piece of his greatness because that's what, that's what he's trying to do. He's like, if, I'm not, if I go do this thing, I'll make the money. He'll be within my my reputation and within my resume and I'll be great. But actually what I really should do is love him and his son. And the whole rest of the movie is him wrestling, trying to live up to this ideal, trying to really be a better human being. It's actually a repentance movie. I know our, nobody, you're never going to read a, a movie review because you know, the movie reviews today are written by secular godless people and they're not going to say it's actually a repentance movie but a pastor can tell you it's a repentance movie it's a kind of a secular repentance movie and the, the, the end of the movie is glorious because what he learns is he learns to love his wife not use his wife but love his wife and I just want to say at the end of the day, you can have glorious people around you and you can get glories in your life and maybe even your own glory. But what you really, really need, and you know this, is to be truly loved. Really. And I know you go, oh, that's, I, no, 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 no. Really. Um, I'm going to brag on my wife a little bit now. I actually firsthand know kind of what this was like. A lot of these qualities, my wife is patient and kind. How about this? This is the one that, that really gets to me. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, and it doesn't end. Actually, my wife, for 16 plus years, has bared all things. She's bared my sins, and bears the way I don't do what she wants me to do, what I'm supposed to do. She believes in me. She hopes for me and my best. 
she has endured, and so far she hasn't left. Okay, it continues to go on. That's real love. It's way better than hanging out with Ricky Henderson. Way better. Some of you, you maybe you're like, okay, Ricky Henderson doesn't do it for you. Steve Jobs. I'm an Apple fanboy. Right? You really want us to be loved. That's the power of it. Which is why all the movies and songs are all about it. Come on, pastor. We all know this. We all know that we want somebody to love us this way. We also know that we're supposed to love the important people in our life this way. Heck, we're all supposed to at least give a you know, little of this to everybody. The really annoying person that has 15 things in the supermarket line, even though it says very clearly no more than 10. <laughs> They're standing right in front of you. They're really slow in taking out that, 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 that they're, they're little, you have a, do you have a discount card? Oh, I'm not sure. And they're looking through all their cards, and you're like, hmm. Okay? And th- that's a person's a stranger. And even to that person, just a little bit of patience and kindness. We even know we're supposed to be that way, but we're not. I could tell you, I could tell you, I could guilt you, I could prod you, I could make you feel really bad. Do you feel really bad? You should feel really bad. Because <laughs> you stink. I love my children. But, look, I, t- I teach in discipleship. Don't build your identity upon what you can do. But in the middle of the week, I, I, pastors are busy guys. I'm a busy guy. I got a lot of things on my plate. I have more things on my plate that I could actually do. And then my children come up to me and go, oh, Daddy, could you do this? this? Can you take this from me? And you know, so of course, I'm your father and I love you. And I will pour patience and love and kindness and endure and believe all things and it will never end. That's not what happens. Regularly what happens is, Get out of here! <laughs> I, would li- I used to literally say, you know, they'd be in my room, Daddy, da 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 I'm like, okay, get out. <laughs> I would just say, get out. And then they'd, all three of them would be running out. <laughs> now it's over. Get out. And literally. And some days I say it with some humor, but some days I mean it. That's my kids! <laughs> So, you know, if I'm a little irritable to you, um, it's because I'm, I'm a sinner. You know this is the way you want to be loved. And you know this is the way we're supposed to be. But we also know, and we're so afraid, nobody, if they find out actually these little things about me, they won't endure. If, if they won't, certainly it, the love will end. And, I'll, uh, um, and we know that. We feel that. But I'd like to close with the gospel and maybe more than any other day today. And if you've come to our church for a while, you know, I hope this is the way you're always, you always look forward to the, the ending of the sermon. Right. I'd like to read this passage the way one of my pastor friends likes to read this passage. This is how he reads. Let's go to verse 4. 
No. This is what he says. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful to you. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. He bears all your garbage. He believes in everything about you. He hopes in you, and he endures, and his love for you will never end. He will never, ever, ever leave you or go away. That's the gospel. Oh, that, is that just nice? There's a person out there, this fairy tale guy named Jesus, and Jesus just cares. Actually, in history, there was an event called the cross, and it was real. It happened. And on that cross, he bore all things. He endured all things to love you forever and ever and ever. That's the gospel. You know, um, there's this funny way that the, the way this, this chapter ends, and, I'm, and I could preach on this chapter for weeks, quite frankly. But let me just cut to the chase. Here's this way, strange way of sending. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You know what he's saying? When I was a child, I always was worried about what I can do with my gifts, how much faith I got, whether I can, I can talk like an angel, how smart I am, how fast I am, how much money I can make, what my gifts and talents are. But when I grew up, I learned to love. I knew I was loved. I became a man. That's what he's saying. And he has this remarkable way he ends this, this odd and mysterious way he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Look, um, what he's talking about is this. What we know in part, you only know in part that you are loved. You only know how to believe the gospel just in part, in fits and in starts. You only see, like into a mirror dimly, you only see this truth, you only see this person, Jesus, very dimly. Some of you are like, really dimly, Pastor? I barely, barely see Jesus. Right now we see him very dimly. But there will be a day when he who is God, you will see him face to face. See, every night I know you know, I, I, I've got, I'm at work, I'm running through my life, and every night I go home, and I know that Grace, my wife, loves me because her face, I look into her face, and her love, she loves me. And there will be a day you will meet the one who on the cross bore all things, endure all things, and believes in you forever and ever you will see his face 
and you will fully be grown up. You will know that you are fully known. He knows you to the bottom, bottom, bottom of who you are. And he loves you. And will always love you. Now this is a series about the church. This is really what we're trying to be. We're all trying to grow up from being childish. The church is really bad at community. Because, well, Americans are really bad at community. We're horrible at community. But actually, if you come to the church and every week you hear this thing called the gospel, by fits and starts, you'll begin to see less and less dimly and you will know and believe deep down you are loved. And when you're loved this way, you'll begin to love this way. There'll be a community not built upon the collective glory of whatever it is that the culture believes on, or all the mass, everybody else seeking their own glory, but the glory that when you go face to face with Jesus, the crucified one, you are loved. That's what the community of the church is built on. And that's why we can love each other. Really love each other. You receive that love, even a little bit, it'll change you. It'll do something to you. You'll be able to love some more. Really love. Let's pray and go to the table of the Lord. Lord, we need to eat your gospel. We need you, your grace, your truth, your love to go deep into us so that we can love our kids and the annoying person in front of us in line and our brothers and sisters and know you. We thank you, Lord, that to a people so love poor, we are full of pride and arrogance and impatience and anger, self-seeking and self-glory. To us, you would dare to pour yourself out and love us. Thank you. Thank you for this great gift of your grace. As we eat now, change us and make our church your family, your people, beloved by you. In Jesus' name.